right, we are in First Kings, and we are dealing with um, Solomon's reign. Get there, find it in the Bible. And uh, let's, uh, we're going to deal with the Queen of Sheba today, but I did, there was just a couple of things I didn't get to last week that I wanted to uh, bring out. So let's just uh, stay and we'll read uh, for our text today, chapter 10 of 1 Kings. <clears throat> let's just read the first 13 verses, which will, I think, help us get into what we're going to look at today. It says, Now, when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with uh, camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stone. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind, and Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came, and my eyes have seen it. And behold, the half was not told. Your wisdom and prosperity suppress the reports that I heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants, who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king a hundred and twenty talents of gold, and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave the king Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almond wood and precious stones, and the king made of the almond wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, so lyres and harps, or lyres and harps for their singers, no such almond wood has come or been seen to this day. And King Solomon gave to the Queen of Sheba all that she desired, and whatever she asked besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she re- she turned back and went back to her own land with her servants. You may be seated. Well, I do want I wanted to kind of finish up some things uh, concerning. Uh, the uh, dedicate the prayer of dedication of Solomon of the temple, but I'm going to because a little bit late start because I don't want to have to um, cut this short. Uh, this this the account with Sheba it kind of needs to be one thing. I'll maybe try to get that uh, worked in at a later date because there's a couple of things there. That it, the, the whole prayer of the of dedication that Solomon prays is just interesting. <laughs> Of course, just by way of uh, review, remember that our, they had to pray towards the temple and how we uh, sh- uh, showed here that that was a, I think, looking forward to, uh, we pray in view of Christ, in Jesus' name. We pray uh, in view of the cross. We can't approach God outside of the cross, right? So they their, their prayers are heard and their prayers are for forgiveness when they prayed towards the temple. Um 
And so then we also saw that we are saved this way and our daily sins are forgiven this way. In other words, we pray not only for salvation uh, in view of the cross, but as Christians, we, we pray like First John 1, 9. We, we uh, pray for daily forgiveness, uh, all based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's some of the things that we dealt with before. I'm just going to skip forward a couple of things here. That I'll deal with this at a later date. Um, well, I'll leave it until we get to it. We'll just leave that there for right now. In chapter uh, 9, I'm going to skip really chapter 9 for the most part. Uh, you could read it and, and see here. But in chapter 9, basically, it's just Solomon finishing both of the houses. God repeats his words of Solomon that he will, uh, if he will honor him as Lord, he will honor him and, and fulfill his promises in him. You see this in uh, verse uh, 2. The Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. Of course, this is a, a dedication. And I have consecrated this house that you have built, put in my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there uh, for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with the integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and commanded you and kept my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your throne forever over Israel, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But we, we know that all that is kind of contingent to some degree on their obedience as far as physically being fulfilled, but ultimately it was fulfilled in Christ anyway. But we notice there in verse 4 that God wanted heartfelt love and obedience and that he be honored as the only God. It, it, nothing has changed. It's always what God has wanted. That The, new, the old covenant, new covenant, that, that's really the essence of all uh, man's dealings with God. He expects to be treated and to worship as God. And that's why we said, I think it was last week, that it wasn't that they, they sinned that it bringing, that brought the old covenant to an end. It was because they uh, turned into idolatry. There was provisions made for sin, but when you turn your back on God and start worshiping other gods, and the, the God says, no, there's that, there's no forgiveness for that. That doesn't work that way. So, uh, he guaranteed him three things. If you read verses five, seven, and eight, you see that he guaranteed him, uh, the land turf, the temple and the throne would continue forever. They would dwell in the land forever. Uh, this house would endure forever. And this kingdom would endure forever if they worshipped only him. And of course they didn't do that. And all three of those scenes came to an end. Well, anyway, um, in chapter 10 though, we come to one of the most interesting, I think, text uh, accounts in the Old Testament. And that is the Queen of Sheba. And in one sense it needs no explanation. It's e easy to see... I think, how it applies to the kingdom of God. You see Solomon, of course, this is, the, the good and the bad of this is that this is the pinnacle of Israel's kingdom. From now on, things just go down. There are a few bright spots uh, with Hezekiah and a few of the other kings. Things do well. But by and large, this is the zenith of the kingdom. But as we read, of course, that he's the wisest and he's the richest uh, of all the... Uh, kings of the earth, we see, ultimately, we see the kingdom of the Lord, and he who has all wisdom and all power. And so here, while the 
people's physical needs are being met, what impresses the Queen of Sheba the most is what she is able to hear. She's heard about his wisdom and everything else. And so she wants to see it. And so she goes and it says she asked uh, Solomon the hard questions. And she was impressed with what she has seen, but also what she has heard. And she's just amazed. And, and to the point that she admits that the half had not been told to her before, right? And, uh, of course, there's a song that we sing, uh, at least an old song that we uh, came to my mind anyway. To Jesus every day I find my heart is closer drawn. He's fairer than the glory of the gold and purple dawn. He's all my fancy pictures and its fairest uh, dreams and more. Each day he grows still sweeter than he was the day before. The half cannot be fancied beside the golden shore. Oh, there he'll still be sweeter than he ever was before. And, and of course, it comes from this text, and, and I think this is a text that kind of looks forward to uh, us new covenant believers. We know that even though we have the full revelation, it's only a scratching the surface of what is, awaits us, right? And so I think there's something there as she comes. It's just a it's it's reminding us that all that we have heard of Christ, as Paul kind of says, I look through a glass darkly. We 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 are we're only really scratching the surface of what surface of what awaits us. And so you, you kind of see that. And the thing about that, that makes this better, and I think a good type of Christ is because when we think about Every experience we'll ever experience in this world. You know, we all know, and if you're young, maybe you haven't quite got hold of this, but at a certain point you're going to realize the hype is always exceeds what you actually get. You know, it's just, it, you know, it's like if you've ever hunted deer. When you go and find the deer you've shot, the antlers are never quite what you thought they were when you, I shot the thing, right? It's always a little disappointing. But, but what we're being told here is nope. Um, you're, we can't, we don't have the ability to imagine what heaven's going to be like because it's just going to exceed all expectations. And so there, there's just that in this whole text that is neat and, and I like to think about it. I think it helps us. So the writer wants us to be impressed. So he gives us the queen's reaction. Uh, and then he goes on to, of course, describe some of Solomon's, uh, the, the whole throne room and so forth, his, his uh, wealth and power on top of that. So she ascribes him praise and, and offers him the best that she has. So, again, I think she's a good example of someone who truly comes to Christ by faith. We give of ourselves and we get, we just are astounded with his glory. You know, a good testimony is always something about what Christ has done. It's not about us. It's about Christ. And unfortunately, a lot of churches today, uh, the, 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 uh, certainly a lot of preachers, I, I, you know, I thought of uh, Kenneth Copeland. His whole ministry is, is around us getting what we want out of God, right? And it's all about us. It's all about man, not about the Lord. And, and But here we see the proper reaction. And, and so, we, you know, in, in thinking about all this, um, the most important lesson, though, of the Queen of Sheba is what Jesus says later in Matthew 
uh, 12 about her. I think that's what really what makes this stand out because otherwise we kind of read this and oh that's neat and we pass on but Jesus looks back and he mentions the Queen of Sheba with some extremely important and I think uh, interesting lessons. We find that in Matthew 12 41-42 the men of Nineveh will rise up now of course just get remember the context here Jesus has come into his own and his own has received him not. And uh, so here he's dealing with some more unbelievers, some more Jews who are not impressed with Jesus Christ. And they've rejected him. So he's, so in, 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 in a judgment against him, he says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So the men of Nineveh heard a, in, in contrast to Jesus not much, right? Jonah, who you you would have to assume in his preaching was it was kind of half-hearted. You know, you ever you ever seen a preacher uh, who gets behind the pulpit and he's preaching and it seems to be more of a lecture? He doesn't he doesn't really seem to care. You know, I, I've seen a few like that, and uh, and Jonah perhaps was like that. He's going through there. Well, forty days you repent. You know, if you don't repent, you're going to be destroyed because he wanted him to be destroyed, right? But whatever. They listened to the word of the Lord and reacted properly. But these Jews weren't doing that. And then he says the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So in this account, Jesus uses these two examples to teach how important Christ should be to us. And that she merely heard about Christ, and uh, she went and she investigated to see if they be true, and was rewarded richly for it. Now there's some debate. It, it's, it was it's historically always thought that she came from Ethiopia. There's reasons to believe that could be the case. Uh, I think recently a lot of people have hold that she came from Arabia, and there's reasons to uh, believe that. But you know, it's not. I don't think it really matters where she came from, but she did come from somewhere, and it's certainly a true story, and Jesus refers to this. But he chides Israel um, for treating him with indifference, right? Because this is the point. They, they're they not impressed with Jesus preaching with his works, and yet uh, he, he says uh, some... The Queen of the South was very impressed with Solomon and all his glory, and yet there's someone with greater glory standing before you, he says, and you are unimpressed. And because of that, uh, she's going to judge you in a sense. When, When the Queen of Sheba just heard of the glory of Solomon, she takes great treasures and sets out on a long journey to see if it's true. Yet Solomon is only a dark shadow of the true and glorious wise king. And yet many act as if searching out his glory and wisdom isn't that important. Just like those Jews did. And you think about this. The the gospel is readily available in uh, this country. And yet how many actually give a flip to go and hear it and to search out Christ? 
and I remember in, in Mexico there, we were at a little conference way out in a village somewhere, and uh, Mark Webb was telling us that there was a guy, they were having a little series of meetings one week, and there was an older man who every night would walk over this pretty high mountain, as it were, a, a big rugged hill, every night, a few miles, to hear the preaching, and then go back. And you think about that, and yet you got people who who can't be bothered to to be in church and to hear the word of God and to read and study the word of God. It, it's if I got time, if there's anything else out there, you know, I, I I'll do that first. And I think we got to be careful here because yes, this applies to the lost who don't care anything about the Lord, and when they hear the gospel, they reject it. But how much worse when Christians who have seen his glory become unimpressed with it and their, their their love grows cold and so i think here what jesus is saying is that god watches us to see how seriously we take him do we act like there is no other glory or pursuit more important than jesus christ the one who doesn't bother to study the bible to see what the bible teaches about Christ is going to be held accountable. <clears throat> I think we can say it, there's a, it illustrates here the difference in the difference between the Queen of Sheba, who I, I, I tend to assume that she either became a believer if she wasn't already one because of her words. I, you know, I would assume that, but we don't know for sure. But the, you could say that Jesus contrast here between someone who might have a lack of faith. It's someone who has active disbelief. Someone who is just skeptical and has no care about these things, as the Jews were. The disbelievers are saying, do something to impress us. This is this is the thing. They weren't impressed with Jesus. Even his miracles didn't impress a lot of them. Uh, certainly not to the point of conversion, right? Uh, and his teachings didn't impress them. In fact, they he was killed because of his teachings. And so, remember, Jesus says, you know, Paul, Paul later says that the, that the Jews require a sign. And none will be given except, of course, you know, really the cross. And they didn't believe that. But that, this is what, this is why the Jews were unimpressed with Jesus. Show us a sign, they kept saying. And then, when, of course, when he did it, they didn't matter because they didn't, they're going to reject him anyway. And so they, they're saying, cater to our demands. But Jesus said that the Queen of the South was able to, is able to condemn them because she did not have a faith in what she heard. She went to investigate. She didn't send a messenger to Solomon saying, you know, I've heard these interesting things. I want you to come at my command and impress me and prove yourself to me. And that's what the skeptics do today, right? Uh, you know, if God is there, uh, strike me with a lightning. Or do this, you know, prove yourself to me as if this world and creation isn't enough proof. And, and I think that, I, you know, I, I'm just, I, I just fall on my knees before the Lord that I won't, we all have to answer to the Lord in whatever ways a Christian will, but to think about the, the skeptic who, who said, I don't see God in anything, and they got to stand before him, and, and he's gonna say, you looked at creation, 
and you were unimpressed with that, and you and you tried to say that there's no God, and that's why the Bible says that everybody knows there's a God. They're suppressing the knowledge what can be seen about God in Romans one, and that's what the skeptics do. But she didn't. She heard and she went and she investigated it. She came from the ends of the earth to hear Solomon's wisdom. So she'll be able to condemn those who are actively disbelieving against Jesus because she searched for truth instead of saying, I want the truth to search me out. She searched for that. That's the difference between someone, I think, who has been given faith uh, and, and, and those who, of course, have not. And then the Lord brings the judgment, the final judgment into all this. And he says that you haven't heard the last of this queen. She'll be pointing the finger at you during the judgment. Now, I don't think it necessarily means that she will be actively involved in the judgment, even necessarily present when these people are being judged. But I think that what's, it's her testimony. It's the moral implications of what she has done versus theirs that will be used against them, we might say. Because she valued the Lord and they despised the glory of God. And so the point is that the glory of this world cannot compare to the glory of God. And yet, even sometimes we, right, just act like given a few hours to to gathering to hear the word of God and to listen to what God has to say, to, uh, to have to spend, you know, to give our money, our tithes and offerings, our love and our energy is almost asking too much. It's just like sometimes it's, just, it's like asking people, too much to be committed to the church, committed to Christ, committed to the things of God, right? But we, and of course it's especially bad because we have had our eyes open. And of course, we'll get to it at the end here. The problem is, is that we need to, this is a great opportunity to judge ourselves because I would say at the end of the day, if you are not really committed to Christ and impressed with him, something's not right. Something's wrong. And, and, and someone who professes to know Christ needs to look very carefully at themselves. Well, anyway, this let's close by thinking about Matthew's account because it begs the question, in what ways is Jesus greater than Solomon, right? He, he, he kind of throws that out there. We know that, well, on the surface, well, he's God. I mean, obviously... He's greater than Solomon. But obviously it kind of begs the question, right? So let's just deal with some of the ways that Jesus is greater than Solomon. And first thing we might think of is that in wealth, Solomon owned some things. But of course Jesus owns everything. Jesus owns Solomon. Solomon was richer than all other kingdoms, but he didn't own all other kingdoms. Uh, Isaiah 40, 45, verse 12, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. Uh, back uh, here in uh, verse 5, I am the Lord, and there is none other. Besides me, there is no God. I equipped you, though you do not know me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, talking about the stars, 
by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And of course, there's there's billions upon billions of stars, right? And yet the Lord knows all by name. He, he knows every one of those is constantly in his mind. He's familiar with everything. And again, we can just go on and on, especially... Remember, when I first came here, one of the first things we did was go to Isaiah 40 to 48. Because it's all about the sovereignty of God and, 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 and exalts God. And, and so, you know, he owns everything because he created everything. And it would only make sense. Um, what could be more ludicrous than living in such a grand universe with such a magnificent God and for a human being that's living on a small speck in, in, in the middle of all that, to look at a mirror and sees his image and makes his life all about himself. When, when you have all this around you and when there's clearly a God who has created this and he sees his, the significance of his existence in himself. And yet that's the modern gospel, as I said there with Kenneth Copeland and others that, that, that feed that. Life isn't all about man, it's all about God. And so equally needful is for us to live in light of the fact that God owns all things. He owns all things, not all things outside of your body. There's a lot of women today, right? And of course men along with them, but a lot of women who need to understand Every time they say, it's my body, I do with it what I want, they're rejecting God. They're rejecting his authority. None of us have a body that is ours to do whatever we want to do with. We can only do with it as God has given us the right to do those things, as he has revealed himself to us. And so, you know, it seems like abortion is almost the poster child of modern day religion and uh, of, of all that's going on today, uh, of self-autonomy, it certainly is that, right? But we need to be careful that we don't get caught up in all that stuff. Because it's just it's just another way that people reject God. And so if God owns all things, there's no reason for us not to have a strong faith and a healthy prayer life, right? Because we go to the one who uh, is control of all things. It has all things. Well, secondly, we know that Jesus uh, is not only uh, richer than Solomon, but he is wiser than Solomon. Solomon had some wisdom. He is said to have more wisdom than anybody else on earth. But at the best, that's just some wisdom. Because Christ has all wisdom. He is called the epitome of wisdom and and it's not just that he knows about everything, but because he created all things and all things exist for him, he knows the best way to use all things. So there's a lot of people who are wise in that they understand certain concepts, but they're very foolish in that they don't know how to use those things for the glory of God. But Christ knows all, and he knows the perfect way to use that knowledge. And so, again, shouldn't our faith be growing and growing as the more we come to understand these things in Christ? He knows everything that there is to know because he created it. And he knows how to make everything work in the best possible way. And if you make every, if you made everything, you know everything in full detail. And, and that would include then our hearts and our minds, our emotions. Again, it's so easy to, 
kind of acknowledge all this out there. But if, if all that's true, then he also knows the best way to think and the way our emotions are supposed to work and the way our minds are to think about things and so forth. And so what must our complaining and malcontent look like to the Lord when we try to live as if uh, in the wisdom of something other than what he has given to us? <clears throat> Certainly if the Queen of Sheba lost her spirit when she saw Solomon's wisdom, how much more should we be amazed when we come to see the wisdom of God? When we come for the answers of life, right? And going back to, to, we need to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to become accustomed to the point that the, the, that the Lord has blaséed us and that the Bible is blasé, church is blasé. And I understand how easy this is for us to happen because our sinful flesh just gravitates towards that kind of stuff. But but keep reminding yourself and keep asking the Lord to, to, to help me to be excited about the things of God and, and to care about these things and to grow in these things and not to just treat it like religion or, or, or some, some part of your life. I've never been more bewildered, probably at anything, more than Christians who... When they get themselves into trouble or having problems, they refuse to listen to what the Word of God says, the wisdom of God says to the answers of life. And so they can be miserable and depressed, emotionally unstable. They can be despairing. They, they can have petty distractions in this world. And, and they, they, they just don't seem to care what Jesus has to say about those things. It's because we're dazzled by the glory of this world, and I understand, of course, why that is. But our spirits should fail within us when we come before the Lord, not when we see something amazing, right? You know, I stand at some of the great picturesque places in in this world, and we are so impressed with it, and, and rightly so. We stand in awe at the Grand Canyon or the Tetons or whatever. And, and yet, we seem to be much more impressed with his physical works than his work within us, and his work in the salvation of souls, right? We, we, we just get, because one kind of feeds our flesh, in a sense. And so we've got to be careful about those things, and we don't want to be dazzled by the glory of this world Jesus doesn't just have life, he's the fullness of life. And we don't want to get consumed with just bits and pieces of this life. It says here that she took the hard questions of Solomon to be answered. And and so we can go to Jesus for the difficult things, for the for the, 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 the big things in our life. There is answers in God's word for, for how uh, we are to deal with those things. I've never had a problem. Just, just speaking of my own personal experience, I don't believe I've ever had a problem that I couldn't, I didn't find answered in the Word of God. That the principles there speak to every situation I'm in. Yeah, the, the Bible doesn't necessarily, well, doesn't give us, doesn't tell you, well, here's how you need to invest your money to make sure that you, you know, it, it grows and all that kind of stuff, right? But the Bible tells us what to do 
and how to react if it if your money increases or if you lose it all. Because that's what's important. Whether you have money, whether you don't have money, is that's God's business. It's how you live in light of those things, right? So the Bible gives us direction in every area of life. <clears throat> and then, um, oops, I, I go back here. Yeah, um, in wisdom, but also in provision. Solomon provided for a small country, but there was still, we have to assume there were still some who were maybe poor, maybe needy. Uh, there were those who clearly were, uh, you know, didn't have as much as somebody else for whatever reasons. Uh, whatever, you know that it wasn't a perfect environment, but everyone in Christ's kingdom is given above that which they can ask or think, right? All needs of our life are, su- are, su- are supplied. We have the ability to have to be completely content in Christ. <clears throat> and, and, of course, the, the provision is because we have Christ, we have all things, right? Every promise. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if he's given us Christ, which means forgiveness of sins, peace with God, uh, a, a life that will uh, live forever in the presence of God, power to uh, live a godly life now and to, to, to persevere to the end. What else do we want? We've got everything we need. Now, this flesh wants a lot of stuff. I understand that, but uh, we, we have everything that we need. And, of course, ultimately, we know that we shall enter into perfect existence of perfect bliss. So, Solomon provided, I mean, everybody had, remember had their own fig tree to sit under. And life was good under Solomon. But it can't compare to what we are going to inherit in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and then, kingly, and fourthly, kingly power. Solomon's will was done, but it wasn't done perfectly, and it wasn't done universally, right? He controlled some people, but not all people. Uh, but Christ has the power and authority over all people, all flesh. You say, well, there are those who don't uh, obey him. Well, right, that's because the Lord allows it, and they only allow, he only allows it as far as he wants it, because it's all working towards his glory. Nothing's being done outside of his will. And, of course, uh, we... Um, Think of Daniel 4.34. And this, this to me is one of those verses that really, once I read this and, and thought about it and grasped it, it, it was a life-changing verse for me. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdoms endure from generation to generation. So you see, his kingdom is over all things, Solomon's is over a little teeny uh, country. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So, everybody's doing God's will. Some are doing it knowingly, Christians, and some are doing it unknowingly. As they rebel against him, yet they're doing his will. And it's, it's, it's astounding to think about the sovereignty of God. It goes way beyond our ability to 
comprehend. And, and some people deny it because they don't get it. They don't understand how God can, you know, decree all things, which includes sin. But there it is in black and white. There's nothing that's apart from his uh, power. So Solomon has some kingly power, but Christ has all power. Solomon reigned for a while. Christ will reign forever and ever. So we need to live in light of that. A couple more here. Fifthly, uh, in sacrifice, Solomon offered, as we uh, read or referred to, I was going to refer to that earlier, but we'll, well, I'll mention it some, at some point. At the close of, his, of the dedication of the temple, Solomon was said to have offered thousands, tens of thousands of animals. It's just an astounding sight, and yet a, a very bloody and in some ways grotesque sight. And yet what's being told there, you know, someone's blood, someone's blood has got to be shed if there's going to be forgiveness of sins. So Solomon offered thousands of sacrifice, but of course, ultimately, Jesus offers the one sacrifice. He's better in sacrifice. Better than bulls and the blood of bulls and goats. And he only had to do it once and he never needs to be done again. So it's a perfect sacrifice. It was once for all and it was perfect. It, it accomplished exactly what the Lord wanted it to accomplish. And then finally, Jesus is greater than Solomon in construction. Solomon is known primarily, I suppose, for, besides his wisdom, for the construction of the temple, the house of God. And in that he prefigures Christ, who is building the true temple, the, the, the true dwelling place of God, which is his people, the church. And, and that's worldwide. Solomon's was a, uh, it was a, it was a beautiful house as far as it goes, but it was not permanent, because it's not there here now, right? It wasn't all that big as we've seen. Um, it, you know, only a few ever saw it. But the church is worldwide, and the church is glorious, and, and uh, the church is spiritual. It's universal. It's it's all around this globe, and it will it's ever increasing. Not only will the church be around forever, but it continues to increase, and so the Lord's power continue or not power, but His glory continues to increase. And by that, I don't mean that 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 Jesus isn't all glorious, and that He has He's Ascending in glory, but there's a sense in which his, as his, as the church increases and more and more people are saved, more and more people enter to the kingdom, more and more people are praising the Lord. So there's a sense in which this glorious kingdom is increasing, right? And, and more praise and glory is, is given to the Lord. Because remember, as each um, saint dies, the the crowd. In heaven, the myriad of, of souls in heaven is increasing. So as he sits there on his throne, just, you know, it's just constantly increasing as people go to glory. And the, the choir gets larger and larger until, of course, the day when we are all gathered in the eternal state and uh, we will be singing praises to the Lord. And again, it's funny, though, that as we say that, people don't aren't impressed with, even Christians aren't impressed with the church of God, aren't impressed with the people of God and the growth of the kingdom. 
I think there's Christians probably who are much more excited over whether the temple is going to be built over in Jerusalem someday that wouldn't walk the street, cross the street to hear about the Christ and the true temple, right? The, that which all those buildings look forward to, the, the church of God. But I think, again, what Christ has been saying here is that those those kind of attitudes, the Queen of Sheba will condemn you. I hope we never tire about hearing of the marvelous work of Christ, the redeem, redemption of his people, as he secures for us the eternal blessings found in the covenant of the new covenant. Because that's what Christianity is. It's not about miracles, as we're uh, talking about here in First Corinthians. It's not about miracles and healings and tongues and emotions, physical excitement, fancy sanctuaries. It's not to say that none of that doesn't come into play at some point. But that's not what it, Christianity is about. Even as in, in 1 Corinthians 13, what's Paul's main point? The gifts are to help us love one another. That's what it's all about. It is to love God and love one another. It's not about the gifts, right? Those are instruments. And it's, it's just amazing how we can turn our faith into everything but what it should be sometimes. It's about the very God of gods. It's about his glory and the person of Jesus Christ. It's about him living in you and conforming you to Christ. And so I hope that Christ is the most glorious person that you know. Because if he's not, you're in a serious uh, situation. Like these Pharisees, you've failed to see his glory and you do so at your own peril. The Queen of Sheba was so stunned when she had seen all that Solomon was and had done that he says there was no more spirit in her. And so, I, so again, I, I'm, not, I'm trying to be realistic here. Obviously, you know, as, as Christians, we our, our commitment and our love and emotions wane back and forth a little bit. It's hard for us to keep full uh, excitement and. and uh, glory and uh, wonder and worship with the Lord, right? In, in glory we will. We'll, we'll never wane in our commitment to Christ. We'll always be astounded. And right now it's hard, but if if you know in your heart you really aren't astounded with Christ, you don't really love Christ, you're not committed to Him, there's a lot of things in this world that you love more, then take that to mean that you don't really know Christ. And start asking God, to reveal himself to you. Because if he's not your savior, of course you're dead in your sins. Just like these uh, Pharisees that Jesus is condemning. Don't make the same mistake that they made. Don't let the world dazzle you with its darkness. So that you can't see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Because nothing compares to him. And that's what that's really what Jesus is saying right here in the, to these people. So if the Queen of Sheba traveled far and spent much to see Solomon, how much more should we do that for Christ, right? It's not a difficult uh, thing to understand. Then again, lastly, I would just remind ourselves that there's a promise here that awaits for us in glory. She says the half has not been told her. And I think, again, we can rightly say with her, that the half has not been told, 
we can't experience that yet. We can't say it with experience, but we know it's true. We know that when we stand before the glory of Christ, who is more glorious than Solomon in all these scenes, we'll be able to say, uh, we really had no idea what awaited us in Jesus Christ. And so uh, we have something to look forward to, do we not? Right. All right, we'll stop there today. Any questions? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love to us this day, and we pray, Lord, for you to work in each one of us, that you would reveal yourself to us. May the Spirit of God be at work in each heart and just help us to believe, to understand, to believe, and to act upon the things that we hear this day. And may our love for you increase for you as in the years that you give us to live these things out in this world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.